0: Hi, I'm Jonathan Pennington, and this is the Human Flourishing Podcast. This podcast is a repository of a wide variety of sermons, lectures, interviews, and other resources that I've recorded over the years. Today's episode is a sermon I preached at Sojourn East in Louisville, Kentucky.
1: You're listening to the Matthew Sermon Series at Sojourn East. In this series, we're following Jesus as he calls us to take on his yoke and experience true discipleship. Today's scripture is from Matthew 12, 23-37. Then they brought him a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute, and Jesus healed him so that he could both talk and see. All the people were astonished and said, could this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, it is only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this fellow drives out demons. Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, every kingdom divided against itself will be ruined, and every city or household divided against itself will not stand. If Satan drives out Satan, he's divided against himself. How then can his kingdom stand? And if I drive out demons by Beelzebub, By whom do your people drive them out? So then they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I drive out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or again, how can anyone enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man? Then he can plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me and whoever does not gather with me scatters. And so I tell you, every kind of sin and slander can be forgiven, but blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Make a tree good and its fruit will be good, or make a tree bad and its fruit will be bad, for a tree is recognized by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you who are evil say anything good? For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. A good man brings good things out of the good stored up in him, and an evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in him. But I tell you that everyone will have to give account on the day of judgment for every empty word they have spoken. For by your words, you will be acquitted, and by your words, you will be condemned. This is the word of the
0: Lord. You may be seated. Hey, good morning. You know, during uh, World War II... Oxford scholar and author that I'm sure you've heard of, C.S. Lewis, he did a lot of teaching for soldiers during World War II in the Royal Air Force, uh, often explaining the nature and truths of Christianity, and a lot of that material eventually became a book called Mere Christianity, which I'd recommend to you. One of the things that motivated C.S. Lewis for his teaching was that he would hear a lot of people say something like this. I can accept that Jesus was a really good person and a very moral teacher, but that's as far as it goes. I I can't accept that he was God. He, He may have been a really good person. I can learn some things from him, but it's too far to say that he was God. Well, Lewis was exasperated by this kind of logic because he said, when you read the Gospels, you see that kind of view is not an option. Yes, Jesus was a good teacher. He was a good moral person. But in light of all that he said and did to just view him as a moral teacher will not do because the reality is he was very disruptive. He disagreed with many traditions. He really started a revolution. And most importantly, he claimed to be God incarnate, the most important human being ever born with the authority to forgive sins and determine what was universally right and wrong. So Lewis following the lead of G.K. Chester and other people before him, presented what we often call the trilemma, the trilemma of Jesus. And this just basically means that when we faced honestly who Jesus was and who he is, we really face a threefold option. One is either he was a liar, he was a shyster, a crook who did some kind of magic tricks, right? And maybe even demonically inspired people, uh, to, to hoodwink people. A second option was that he was crazy. He was a lunatic. That he was sincere in all the crazy stuff he said, but he was mental, as they would say in Britain, like many other people who fill mental institutions convinced that they are Napoleon or Julius Caesar or Jesus or something. So he's, maybe he was a liar, maybe he was a lunatic, or as Lewis then finally describes the third option, he was actually Lord. He really was the Son of God incarnate and worthy of all obedience and worship. Now, the point is, you can't take a neutral position on Jesus if you actually read the Gospels. And what we're going to see in our text today is a very good example of that. In fact, it's a very powerful insight. And I begin with this today because our story hits on this exact same nerve. We're going to see that Jesus' actions and his words forced the people in his own day to face a choice about him. And sadly, many people, especially the Pharisees, chose those other two forks in the road, not that he was Lord. So before we jump into this, I just want to pray for us once more. Let me pray. Our Heavenly Father, we, we believe that you are and that you are the rewarder of those who seek you to turn to you as God, and look to you to feed us. Jesus, I believe that you were real and that you rose from the dead are now ascended to heaven. And I pray that you, Triune God, would send the Spirit that we might understand today. That you would fill us and remove blindness and, and muteness from our lives, I pray in Jesus' powerful name, amen. If you have a Bible or want to look in the bulletin, we've got our text for today. We are continuing in the wonderful Matthew chapter 12. And as I've said over the last couple of weeks, which has been such a delight for me to to get these weeks with you, uh, this chapter in Matthew is really ground zero of the great theme of conflict that goes throughout the whole of the Gospel of Matthew. It's really the nuclear core of the tension that is baked into the whole plot of Matthew. Matthew 12 is really, really important. And so what we've seen up to this point is that in the first 11 chapters of Matthew, you have Matthew unpacking who Jesus is through his actions and his teaching, but there's tension, there's opposition growing to Jesus. And then two weeks ago in Matthew 12, 1 to 14, we saw that this conflict comes to a head on the issue of the Sabbath controversy, where where that ends with the leader saying, we're just gonna kill Jesus. In 12, 14, it says that they just decide things are out of control, and that decision to kill him casts a long dark shadow on the whole rest of the story and it really sets in motion where the story is going to end up at the very end in chapters 26 and 27 when Jesus is finally arrested tried beaten and then crucified all that starts right here in chapter 12 and then last week in twelve fifteen to 21 you can go back and listen to these sermons if you didn't get a chance to we saw there was this amazing and powerful description of Jesus. It was like a blue sky in the midst of all this storm around him, that he is gentle, that he is gentle and fulfilling God's mission in the world. And now we meet Jesus, the exorcist. In chapter 12, verses 22 to 37, we just heard read, we see all this wrath and anger that was brewing kind of breaks forth In our text, look at verse 22 again. It says, So they brought to him a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute, and Jesus healed him so that all of a sudden he could both talk and see. This is very typical of Matthew's style. He actually doesn't care about telling a very dramatic story compared to the other Gospels. the, The only action of this whole story is really right here, and it's very short. And it's actually just another example of what we've been seeing all throughout the scripture so far, that Jesus has the authority to heal all kinds of diseases and broken limbs and shriveled hands and bleeding disorders. He even raises someone from the dead. And we've been told more than once that Jesus was an exorcist. That is, someone who had the power to manipulate and even control, even speak to, we saw Invisible, evil, spiritual beings. (laughs) Now, I know that that's not the normal experience for most of us here in this modern, scientific, closed universe West. But throughout most of the world today, and through all of the ancient world, people knew and knew something that we've largely forgotten that there is a real, invisible, spiritual realm of beings that the Bible calls angels and demons. And we're not part of one strand of Christianity that would be called charismatic or Pentecostal. We're not part of that. So we just don't think in these categories a lot. We don't talk this way a lot. And yes, it can be overdone for sure. You know, the devil made me buy this car, kind of bumper sticker or something. For sure, it can be way overdone. But I'm afraid we're far on the other side, that we don't even remember that this is a real this is a reality that there is a whole world of invisible spiritual beings and just because you and i don't think in these terms doesn't mean it's not real right just because we're not used to thinking of it doesn't mean it's not real it'd be like a distant tribal person in the middle of papua new guinea with no exposure to the rest of the world they may not understand or believe that the internet exists But it does, right? Whether they understand it or not. And so too, whether we have been trained and whether our habits are to not think about the invisible spiritual realm, it does exist. one of the things I like to do is to think about banners that we might hang about Jesus, you know, we could say friend and savior and shepherd and Emmanuel. If we imagine like really nice banners hanging throughout our sanctuary, I doubt any of us would have one that says exorcist (laughs) yet the gospels are very clear that this is one of the main ways that jesus is presented and for millions of christians throughout history and today they would understand and value this aspect of jesus why because demons are real and they do oppress and inflict and even at times possess people the bible says And one of the many compassionate and authoritative things Jesus did and does is deliver people, deliver them, rescue them from this demonic activity because this is part of him bringing the kingdom of God upon the earth. So the action of our story that has jump-started, and boy, I don't have time to get into this, but you think about C.S. Lewis again. I started with that. If you read his screw tape letters, you'll see Just a great example of him sort of exploring this, and especially him already saying 70 or 80 years ago, you know, the devil kind of going like this and saying, we've got the West now because they don't even believe in us. That's like the ultimate way to oppress people. They don't even believe anymore, right? So the action of our story is all jump-started by one of these moments where Jesus publicly and visibly exercised a demon from someone. So noticeable, because in this instance, the demon had somehow disabled the man from either being able to see or speak, and then upon Jesus' powerful touch, suddenly, undeniably, this man can see and speak again. Now, that's awesome and amazing if you're following Jesus. It sucks if you're his dedicated enemies. Because, in fact beyond the obvious joy and belief of Jesus' disciples there are two different responses so the, the people that are believing him are amazed at this and and it's beautiful but there are two other responses we see to this in our text look at verse 23 all the people were astonished and said could this be the son of david maybe a little better translation i'd suggest to you here is this this couldn't be the son of david could it Because the sense of their question is actually a little bit more uncertainty. Not skepticism, but there's a bit of a mild confusion on their part. Because, you see, the great hope and expectation and what Matthew's been telling us, including in our passage from last week, is that God is going to send the final son of David, a new king, to usher in God's full and just reign upon the earth. And this is, in fact, what Jesus is doing. But what not everyone expects is that he's going to come as a gentle healer and restorer and exorcist. They're expecting him to come and just overthrow the Roman government with spears and you know, lasers coming out of his eyes or something. But what they're seeing is that he comes very gently and humbly and is focusing on delivering people. So the people are amazed at his abilities. They're not skeptical. They don't deny that he's doing this, but they're a little confused about how this relates to the kingdom coming. It's, in fact, the same question we saw back in chapter 11 with John the Baptist. When he's in prison, he says, we thought you were the one to come. And Jesus' response to him is the same here. All these healings I'm doing are the kingdom of God coming. But That's not the only response. So there's people that are open and and a little confused but still believing But the other response to Jesus is found in verse 24. But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, it's only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this fellow drives out demons. You see, Jesus has performed so many miracles, they can't deny any longer that something's going on. I mean, at first, they probably just dismissed the reports. Oh, yeah, he's probably just some... You know, people are just exaggerating that he was fed people in the wilderness, or people are just exaggerating that he did all these things. But now they themselves have witnessed his supernatural abilities right in public, so they cannot brush him aside anymore. And right in front of everyone, he's just exercised a demon who now can, uh, this guy can see and speak. And so they no longer can deny that he actually has supernatural powers but he doesn't fit into their comfortable worldview and he's disrupting their lives, he's he's disrupting their authority and their influence and so they go with this absolutely absurd idea that he must be satanic. And this word Beelzebul, we don't know exactly where it comes from, but we know it was kind of a, a nickname a little bit that Jews used for Satan. And this is really a prime example of the Pharisees, what we can call quarrelsome spirit, that this is their opinion of him. So think back to our Lord, liar, lunatic. Here they're finally just saying, and they've got a slightly different trilemma going on here that I call Savior, sinner, satanic. Up to this point, they've basically looked at Jesus and said, "This guy's just a sinner, right?" I mean, he's a heretic. He's he doesn't quite believe things rightly. He's a little off in the head. In fact, we just saw it in chapter twelve, verses one to fourteen, on the Sabbath that he he's just he, he's breaking the law. This guy's just a sinner, and so they write him off as that. But now. Now that they're seeing this supernatural power and everybody else is seeing it, they, they can't get in their minds that he might actually be the Savior. So the only other choice they have is that he is satanic. So how does Jesus respond to this? Well, this is crazy because they're not only disagreeing with Jesus' theology and actions, now... They are attacking his very person. They have gone all the way. This is no longer a dispute about differences of theology or practice or something. They are saying he is satanic. And so look at his response. Now remember how we saw last week you can go back and listen to if you weren't here. Jesus is gentle. And we saw it earlier in chapter 12 as well. He's not a wrangler. He doesn't wrangle with people. He's not an internet troll or what I call a G23E, which is a glass two-thirds empty person. That kind of person who's always concerned about other people and looking to correct other people and point out problems. He's not that way. He's a good man. He's gentle. He's non-contentious. He doesn't seek out disputes. But when he's directly attacked, and especially when the credibility of the kingdom ministry is challenged, he's going to respond. And so he does. And he says seven things. Look at them very quickly. First, verse 25, Jesus knew their thoughts, which sucks when your opponent knows your thoughts. He knew their thoughts and said, every kingdom divided against itself will be ruined. And every city or household divided against itself will not stand. If, if Satan drives out Satan, he's divided against himself. How can his kingdom stand? So first he just says, this is just absurd. And as I always like to point out, he quotes Abraham Lincoln here, the same thing Abraham Lincoln said <laughs> right on the eve of the Civil War. And he basically says, if I'm on Satan's side, why would I be healing and delivering all these people? Like It just doesn't even make any sense. Right? Why if I'm satanic would I be destroying all these demons? Second response verse 27. And if I drive out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your people drive them out? So then they will be your judges. In other words, Jesus was not the only exorcist in the world. There are exorcists today. There were exorcists in his day. We see the apostles do some of these things as well in the book of Acts. There were other rabbis and spiritual leaders who sometimes did this, and Jesus's point again is just the absurdity of their argument. In other words, So when, are you saying that anytime somebody, like including some of you rabbis, when you cast out demons, you're satanic then? So he just points out the the absurdity of their argument. This doesn't make any sense. Third response, verse 28. But if it's by the Spirit of God that I drive out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. So he says, there's an alternative interpretation here. It's by God's own Spirit, not Satan's, that I'm doing this. And that means that the kingdom of God is here. So you see, that answers the question back about the son of David as well. Could this be the son of David or this couldn't be, could it? And he's saying, yes, the spirit coming and delivering people is the sign that the kingdom of God is upon you. So Jesus is saying, I'm doing more than just performing an exorcism out of compassion, which he is. He's saying, what I'm doing is the Spirit of God in the world overtaking and replacing the corrupt satanic kingdom of this world with God's own kingdom. And do you remember how Jesus' ministry started? He was tempted by Satan. And what was the third and climactic temptation in Matthew? Where Satan took him to this high point and said, I will give you all the kingdoms of this world and all their glory if you will bow down and worship me. So some real sense, of course, God is sovereign over everything. There's some real sense in which Satan has some authority in the world. And he offered it to Jesus. He saw that Jesus was anointed by the Spirit in a special way at Jesus' baptism. And he said, if I can get this guy on my team, that's my only hope. And so he offers him all the kings of the world. Jesus rejects that and immediately starts preaching instead, not the kings of the world, but the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus is coming back to this now and saying, this work that you're seeing me do, it is the kingdom of God coming upon the earth. Fourth response, verse 29. Or again, how can anyone enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man? Then he can plunder his house. So he uses an illustration and he says, do you want to know what you're seeing here when I'm doing all these exorcisms and healings? I'm actually—it's not Satan at work; it's me binding Satan. Satan is strong, and he does have some authority in the earth. We can see this, say, for example, in the book of Job, where Satan is on a leash, like a dog collar leash, that God is ultimately in control of and can do whatever he wants. And Jesus wants to, and Jesus is saying, "You know what I'm doing here? Actually, I am stronger than him." And I am binding him, I'm cuffing him, I'm boxing his ears and showing him, Satan, to be nothing to me, and that and I'm actually taking back all that he has wrongfully stolen from God's creatures, all the pain, the grief, the fear, the bondage, I am obliterating. So if Jesus had a not only might we have Exorcist, if he had a WWE name, it would be the binder or something, right? he says he is actually coming in. This is not even just the sort of yin and yang, like I'm fighting with Satan and I hope I win or something. He's saying, you know know what's happening here? I'm just coming in and plundering this. This guy is weak. He's the strong man, according to you. I'm just binding him easily with a word. I think of Luther's great hymn, which we should sing sometime. But still our ancient foe, Doth seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great and armed with cruel hate. On earth is not his equal. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. That's what Jesus is saying here. I think also of Colossians 1, 13 and 14, it says, For Jesus has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves. I think Paul's thinking about stories like this when he writes this. In whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Fifth response. Then Jesus goes even deeper and turns the tables on them. Verse 30. He says, whoever's not with me is against me and whoever does not gather with me scatters in other words once again this whole encounter is not a neutral thing if you're not on board with jesus binding and the strong man and the spirit empowered kingdom bringing work then you're against god is what jesus is saying sixth response look at verse 31 and 32 and and so i tell you every kind of sin and slander can be forgiven But blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven either in this age or in the age to come. (laughs) So now it gets really intense. And in fact, this is one of these verses or these, these passages that's often ranked as sort of most difficult passages in the Bible, and I understand why. What is this saying? Well, first, let me point out that verse 32, this distinction that he seems to make between the Son of Man, which is Jesus himself, and the Holy Spirit, there's, that's caused a lot of confusion for people. And let me just tell you what this is not saying. This is not a grand statement about the Trinity somehow that the Holy Spirit is higher in the Trinity or more important than Jesus or something. It's nothing like that. It's not saying it's okay to reject Jesus as long as you don't reject the Holy Spirit, whatever that would mean. The point seems to be rhetorical that Jesus is saying, you can misunderstand and you can misinterpret my rather ambiguous references to myself as the Son of Man, but what is deadly is if you ultimately reject the gospel ministry I'm doing as not being from God that's what he's saying so what is this blasphemy against the holy spirit which again has caused a lot of people anxiety i several years ago i wrote a little blog article article for the gospel coalition that you may want to look up after the service um not right now uh on the question they asked me you know what is the unforgivable sin and and uh, I remember, I, I talk about this in the article, I remember when I was a young Christian listening, I doubt this even exists anymore, but there was this guy, like the Bible answer man, like you could listen to on the radio, anybody remember that? I don't remember much about it. But I remember even back then as a young Christian, a lot of people calling in and saying, I'm afraid I've committed the you know unforgivable sin or something. And and having written that article now, you know, when people Google that a lot, I get emails pretty regularly from people with, often very distraught stories about how they're they're sure that they have committed the unforgivable sin, and they're very anxious about this. And I I get a lot of these emails, actually, and, and maybe you have wondered that too. But I think what's very clear if you pay attention to the text and its context is that the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, whatever this unforgivable sin is, is not, here's a bunch of things it's not, it's not grieving the Holy Spirit or quenching the Spirit like, that you felt like God led you to do something to stop and help that homeless guy or to say this, and then you didn't do it or something that you, that might've been, that might've been the spirit leading you to do something, but that is not at all what the blasphemy of the Holy spirit is. It's not any kind of disobedience. It's not some former slip up where you got scared and, and didn't stand up for God or something. It's, it's not even notice. It's not even the, before you were a Christian, like you were horrible and you said hateful things about Jesus or something because We see right in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul, that was his story, right? That he was involved in the murdering of Christians and said that Jesus was not from God, and yet he was forgiven, right? It also doesn't mean that somehow, again, you were under pressure and you failed to stand up for Jesus. We see right in the New Testament, that's what the Apostle Peter does, and he's forgiven. In other words, all these things you might be worried about that the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is, it's not you screwing up or failing or formerly being bad or something. What the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is that Jesus is talking about right here is a final and determinative decision to declare Jesus' work was satanic. That's what it is. It's saying that when I look at Jesus, and this is your final answer too, this isn't just some former time, Your final answer on your deathbed is Jesus was satanic. If that is your position, then there is no forgiveness. That is true. But if you're worried that you've committed the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, then you haven't. (laughs) That's the point. If you're worried about it and you're anxious, then you have not, because this is a hardness of heart, a final decision that Jesus is satanic. Remember, remember, friends, God is gentle and loving and compassionate. We just saw in the previous passage, He will not snuff out a smoldering wick or break a bent reed. Jesus is not out to get you and say, Boy, I I wish I could save you, but you said one bad thing about the Holy Spirit once or something. That's not what this is. He is full of compassion and love. And then what is Jesus' seventh response? Look at, look at verse 33 and following. He says, Make the tree good, or make a tree good and its fruit will be good, or make a tree bad and its fruit will be bad. A tree is recognized by its fruit. You brood of vipers. How can you who are evil say anything good? For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. A good man brings forth good things out of the good stored up in him, and an evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in him. But I tell you that everyone will have to give account on the day of judgment for every empty word they've spoken. For by your words you will be acquitted, and by your words you will be condemned. You think the last text was disturbing to us and disturbing to people a lot? This one is too. But again, These verses are so often misunderstood. They're so often taken out of context. I think when most people read these verses, they read them as, in fact, unfortunately, your Bible probably has it as a separate paragraph. It's not a separate paragraph. This is all part of the same argument. And a lot of times we read these out of context and we imagine this horrible situation that when you and I die and we're at the pearly gates, that God's going to say, hold on, let me stream the life of Jonathan Pennington, right? And we'll pull it up, and everybody's going to sit back with popcorn and watch all the stupid things I've said and done, right? All the dumb things. Have you ever said anything stupid? Yeah, okay. When you read these verses, it's easy to imagine wrongly that that's what this is saying, that every stupid thing you've said and done, everybody's going to see finally. Amazing, right? People watching this. But this is not what this is saying at all. You've got to read them in context. What is he he's saying? Verse 33, he's speaking about himself. This is part of the same argument. He's saying either make the tree good or make the tree bad. He's, he's the tree here. He's saying, don't say that I'm a bad tree producing good fruit. Right? That's what he's saying. I'm not, this doesn't make any sense that, I'm. yes, you admit I'm doing good things. I'm casting out demons, but I'm a bad tree doing that? He's saying, this is absurd. It's the same argument you're making along. Don't either, either say I'm good, either accept that I am from God, or say I'm bad. But don't say this ridiculous thing that I'm a bad tree doing good, producing good fruit. It's ridiculous. And then he says, these words that you're saying about me reveal your heart. This is the point of these verses that they're calling Jesus demonic is not a small matter because that is actually what is going on in their hearts towards him. This isn't talking about every stupid joke you've said or careless word. He's actually talking about the heart matter of their opposition to him that in their decision to say he is satanic, that, those words reveal their hearts. This is what he calls they're hypocrites, or if I might trademark 2019 a word, they're lipocrites, right? I love it. Come on. Lipocrites. They are actually, they're saying something, right? But it's not, they're, they think that they're good people and they think their hearts are good, but their lips are revealing a bad heart. And so this is specifically what he's talking about. If you look back at those verses, Their final decision, these words that they're spoken, these empty words about him being demonic, that is the issue that they're going to be held accountable for. So this is not some general statement about all the stupid things you've said and done. This is all part of the same argument. This is Jesus' response to their ridiculous attack on who he is as the exorcist. So what do we do with this? Well, I just have two brief words of application. The first one is not the main point of the story. Okay, It comes from those verses we were just looking at. It's not the main point of the story, but I think it's a secondary one that is fair to extrapolate from that, and that's this. First, to take this home today, our words and actions reflect our hearts. I mean, that is the reality. Again, this is not the main point. And in fact, Jesus' argument is very nuanced here. Again, verses 36 and 37 are not saying that you can never joke or never say anything wrong or that you have to live this sort of overly serious life where you're always very careful to never say anything that might be kind of weird or on the golf course, you can never swear or something. If you don't swear on the golf course, I don't know what you're doing. You're probably not playing the sport. I mean, that's what the sport is, right? It's Designed to make you hate yourself, right? <laughs> I mean, golf is basically my experience of golf, and having lived in St. Andrews and played a lot of golf there, uh, my experience of golf is you hit just that shot just occasionally enough to think, oh, this is fun. And then the other nine tenths of the time, you're like, I hate myself. Why am I playing this sport, right? So, but the point is, these verses are not, you know, painting this picture of sort of this somber person who's always very you know, never says anything fun. You have to realize God is really funny, right? If you see any cleverness and funny things in the world, that's a reflection of God, right? God is very funny. So it's not to make this new law where we're paranoid of everything we say, but at the same time, I do think what Jesus is saying in these words that we can extrapolate from what he's saying to the Pharisees is that, our words do reflect our hearts, don't they? And in a mysterious way, they also affect our hearts. Right? The things we say, so imagine, I mean, boy, this is just a daily struggle, isn't it? Imagine there's some punks in your life, right? some people at work or something, or maybe for you it's a spouse, or maybe it's your kids, or you know, coworker, whatever it is, maybe it's a boss. When you find yourself ripping on them and talking to other people about that, that does reveal what's going on inside of you, right? It really does. And in a very scary way, that also affects what you feel too. Your words are very powerful in that they actually shape reality for us and for others. Can you think of a time when someone has said something negative about somebody else in your presence, and then you just can't sort of forget that then, right? And how it, how it poisons the well, as it were, for you. Or on the other side, somebody says something really encouraging to you and how that becomes like a, a, a steak that feeds your soul all week, if that's a metaphor, I don't know. I can think of time. I remember the very first sermon I preached 35 years ago or something. Some I don't even know who it was. Some old guy came up. It was the church I had grown up in and I had become converted in college and went back and spoke. I'm sure it was horrible. And this guy came up to me and said, You've got, you really have a gift. I still remember that. The impact that's had on me, all the ways that's fed me, that's the power of words, friends. And so, teenagers, in person, on social media, your words are very powerful. Think of how deeply you've been hurt or how deeply encouraged you've been by somebody's words. Even if they were in jest, I would say Jesus is inviting you to think about this and and you with your coworkers and maybe your spouses. Friends, again, this is part of this bigger theme in Matthew that what we do and say needs to be intimately connected with our inner person. God doesn't just care about our outsides. He really cares about our hearts and who we are. And so I think the first application from this, which again is kind of an extrapolation, I I know, but it's to pay attention to the fact that our words matter, they reflect our hearts. But I think the most direct application of this text for us today is the second thing I want to say, and that is this. There is no neutral encounter with Jesus. There's no neutral encounter. The biggest and most important point is that you and I, by this text and really all of the Bible, We face a life and death trilemma of savior, sinner, or satanic. You and I cannot act like Jesus doesn't matter. You cannot, friends, have Jesus be part of this is your Sunday sojourn east box of your life. Or maybe this is the thing you do to make your husband or wife not be upset with you so you can have a little peace so you come to church. so easy to live our lives that way. We have so many other things to fill our lives. There's Disney Plus now, if we're going to say, right? What about you? And I think to be faithful to this text, we have to say, I mean, everything in us just wants to kind of blow him off and think, well, I'll just live my life as I want, or maybe I'll have Jesus be a little part of my life or something. It's not an option. He is either a sinner who's not worth following, he's satanic, or he is actually God incarnate who is calling you to a life, a life of joy, a life of fullness, and especially a life of forgiveness. A life of forgiveness. In, in all this discussion of what is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, it's easy to look at it very negatively and, and, and really focus on that that sin's not forgiven. But the other side of that, the implication of that, is that all other sins are forgivable. All of them. That means the affair that you had. That means the affair that you're having. That means stupid things you did, stupid words that as soon as you said them. Oh, if I could just bring that back, right? All these things and everything in between is forgivable. It's all forgivable. It is binding you. It is. It is holding you down. The guilt and the shame that you feel from so many things, and maybe it's so much that you don't even want to think about it anymore, it's forgivable. This is the Savior that is presented to us, that we can find freedom and deliverance and forgiveness. Through Jesus. Let me pray. God, I thank you for showing up and for Holy Scripture that continues to shape us. And Jesus, come and bring healing, I pray. In Jesus' name. We end each service with a great image of what we're just seeing that Jesus, the powerful exorcist, binder, gives his own body to be broken. He breaks bread on the night he's betrayed. He takes wine. He shares it with his own people and invites them to come and find forgiveness. So here at Sojourn, every week, We love to end the service, inviting people to come forward. If you are a believer, come forward and partake of these symbols of forgiveness that are here for you. Amen.
1: I'm Kevin Jamison, lead pastor at Sojourn East. Thanks for listening. For more sermons, info about our church, and ways you can support the ministry of Sojourn East, visit sojournchurch.com
0: slash east. Thank you for listening to the Human Flourishing Podcast. To learn more or get in touch with me, visit my website, jonathanpennington.com.